White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia is a third-generation family farm. The previous two generations farmed cattle pretty much exclusively. The current generation, with farmer Will Harris at the helm, with two other generations working and living on the farm, has reimagined and re-engineered the farm in a way that is a tremendous philosophical shift from White Oak's history and its peers. Cattle, yes, but grass-fed herds, and nine other species too, from chickens and ducks, pigs, sheep, rabbits, and it's working. Will Harris dragged his farm out of commodity farming, away from factory farming and feedlots, and weaned his land off industrial fertilizers. His efforts brought the rural town of Bluffton back too. But that's not exactly why we're here. On March 1st, Will Harris wrote a public letter to Bill Gates in response to the recent news that unearthed Mr. Gates' acquisition of nearly a quarter of a million acres of U.S. farmland. This makes Gates the largest farmland owner in the United States. And Will Harris has a few ideas he'd like to share with the billionaire tech whiz. Welcome to Talk Farm To Me. I'm your host, Farm Girl, and I'm proud to bring the most interesting farmers right into your living room. If you're like me, you've gained some friends along the way, farmers you feel you know and are connected to. Thanks for joining, and if you like what you hear, share it, review it on Apple Podcasts, or drop me a note. This is Episode 5 in Talk Farm To Me's Straight Talk series. It's part of Season 4. And this format has been so popular that it will continue right into season six that's launching soon. You won't want to miss it. Now off to Georgia, where the weather is warm and the peaches are to die for. I was very intrigued by the letter that you wrote to Bill Gates. I think that when the information was pulled together from across the country of the number of acres that Bill Gates has invested in, has purchased, it's 242,000 acres across many states. There has been a tremendous amount of speculation about what he is doing, what he plans to do, and I don't know that there's any definitive information from the Gates camp per se, but a tremendous amount of speculation, especially because he has a program in Africa and Asia called Gates Ag One. He's invested in leading harvest to determine standards for sustainable agriculture. He's invested in the Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger, and he's expressed some sincere concerns about carbon emissions and has invested in, you know, various things. So, so I think what we're playing here is a little bit of a dot to dot game. Everyone's speculating. I'd like to hear what you're thinking about what he's doing now. You know, I think that uh, he has, he's a, uh, you know, clearly he's a brilliant man. You don't become a billionaire without having something going for you. And I think that he has uh, seen, as I have, the ills of the factory farm model that we now uh, 
producing 90-something percent of our food in this country. And I think he has applied his skill set, which is technology, to solving that problem. And I think that he probably can't understand that the problems that we have now are a result of technology. It's applying a very linear production model to a very cyclical system. Explain that to us a little bit. We talk a lot about the difference in a complicated system and a complex system. You know, this computer that you and I are talking on is a very complicated system. And your body or this farm or the United States government is a very complex system. In both cases, there's a lot of stuff going on to make it work. But in a complicated system like this computer, if one component fails, it quits working. It doesn't work anymore. In a complex system like your body or this farm or the United States government, a lot of things are going on to make it work. And if one component ceases to work, everything morphs and it continues to operate in a, in a fashion, maybe not exactly the way it was, but in a fashion. And Bill Gates is a, a linear thinker, reductionist science is very linear. It's very, it works great on complicated systems. It's how we put a man on the moon. It's how you and I are looking at each other and talking when we're so far away. It's, 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 you know, reduction science is fantastic for complicated systems. Reductionist science does not work so well on complex systems. There are often unintended consequences. That's why we've had drug recalls. That's why we've had pesticides that were marketed and then banned. It's how we got... Uh, all this uh, climate change, greenhouse gas, you know, all the things that we applied, the, the complex systems we applied reductive science to, often had unintended consequences and they were unnoticed consequences and they were undesirable consequences. I think in Bill Gates' mind to, he, he continues to plow on down the road of uh, applying technology to this complex system, which is food production. <clears throat> you know, I, we advocate, people like me, advocate uh, applying uh, a more cyclical correction to restart the cycles of nature. Technology allowed man, Phineas EC on Earth, to break the cycles of nature. You know, the, the cycles of nature are, to list a few, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the energy cycle, the mineral cycle, the microbial cycle, on and on cycles that we don't, we're not even smart enough to recognize. No species from huge dinosaurs to, could break those cycles. <clears throat> but man, through technology, broke the cycles. We broke the water cycle, broke the mineral cycle, broke the carbon cycle, da, da, da. And that has resulted in desertification, diminished resources, pollution, uh, you know, less and less topsoil, less and less uh, you know, dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, many, many, many ills. And 
we have demonstrated in what in the past is that those cycles can be restarted and the land can be brought back to a level of high productivity. So let's talk about your authority. You are a farmer and your farm is White Oak Pastures. Tell us what you know from experience that gives you the authority to give some advice to Bill Gates. You are right. I am an authority on regenerative land management. I am an authority on rural community building and I'm an authority on uh, compassionate animal welfare. And I'm not an authority on anything else in the world, but I, I, I am an authority on those three topics. And the one you ask about is maybe my favorite topic, regenerative land management. And what's true is that I graduated from the University of Georgia College of Agriculture in 1976, I'm a science. And uh, I came back home where my father was running this farm in a very uh, linear manner. It was a monoculture of only cattle using a lot of the tools that technology gave us, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, a lot of tillage, uh, subtherapeutic antibiotics, honest force, hormone implants, dot, dot, dot. And I applied all those tools and ran the farm that way for another 20 years and was financially comfortable doing it. My, my, I when I changed, it was not financially motivated. We certainly weren't rich people, but I lived very comfortably. And I never had a year in which I lost money. We paid taxes every year. Uh, in the mid-90s, uh, I was... Uh, enjoying that production model less and less, <clears throat> almost exclusively because I had become increasingly aware of the unintended consequences of that production model, uh, the effect it had on the land, the animals and the community. Can you give me some specific examples of what made you aware? I, I can, I'll, I'll limit it to the land sections. It's just kind of who we're on. You know, I would walk in my fields and look at the soil and it was a dead mineral medium. And I would walk over the edge of the woods and soil just 15 or 20 yards away. And it was a rich organic medium that was teeming with life. Dead mineral medium, rich organic medium. And I wanted this to look like this. So it was pretty obvious to me what the difference was. The difference was chemical fertilizer, tillage, and pesticide. So I ceased to use chemical fertilizer, uh, or pesticide, and tillage. Fast forward 25 years later, we had a uh, study done by an environmental engineering group from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it found that over the 20-year period, uh, my land had moved from one-half of 1% 1 organic matter to 5% organic matter. So let me put that in perspective for you. 1% organic matter will absorb about over 20,000 gallons of water. That's about a one-inch rain event on Lake of Land. So... Today, my land will absorb 
the uh, uh, the rainfall from a five-inch rain event. Now, not if it happened in 30 minutes, but if it happened in 24 hours. Uh, previously, it would only absorb a half-an-inch rain event. Now, I live in the coastal plains of Georgia, and a five- or six-inch rain event is not real uncommon. We get 52 inches of rain a year and some really large rain events. So what that means, not only is my land more productive because it's more drought resistant because it holds the moisture, but <clears throat> also that, that, that excess moisture doesn't flood across taking topsoil and chemical fertilizer and pesticides into the streams, to the creeks, to the rivers, to the Gulf of Mexico. There's a, there's a huge dead spot that aquatic life doesn't exist the way it used to. So uh, am I an expert on regenerative land management? You're down right. And you came to this by experimentation, really. You saw a big problem and you made some changes. Now, explain a little bit like what it takes to convert and from, from you know, conventional agriculture to this regenerative agriculture model. And, and if you don't mind, could you explain it a little bit in financial terms? Because I know that it, you know, it takes some investment in order to make a conversion and maybe not, maybe not an investment that your predecessors, your father and your grandfather would have been keen on. Yeah, so that's a very good, very good question. It's a very big question. And uh, I'll start out by saying that when I became dissatisfied with the results of the linear reductionist farming model, monocultural farming model, uh, I did not have a grand plan to change everything. Uh, I just started moving away from the things I didn't like. Now, it resulted in me pretty much changing everything, but it was not done all at once, and I did not have a burning bush moment. It was a a gradual dissatisfaction that caused me to move away. <clears throat> so uh, financially, it was painful. Uh, I told you that we had made, I had made money uh, every year of my life. Again, we were not rich people, but very lived, lived very comfortably. And uh, I, when I started giving up the tools that science gave me to take cost out of production, like chemical fertilizer and pesticides, I added cost back to production. <clears throat> that just makes sense, doesn't it? I could not extract my added production cost from the commodity model. You know, with the, you know, I, was, I, I guess I was technically spending less on the crop because I was not buying the inputs, but I had less yield, so my cost per unit was higher. Uh, unit produced was higher, and I could not extract that higher cost from the commodity market. So that caused me to have to find a market that would pay a premium to cover my additional cost. At that time, I was a pretty exclusively monocultural beef producer. I had a cow-calf operation. I had a feedlot. So we were very fortunate, and this was in the late 90s, and grass-fed beef was just just kind of catching its uh, traction. So we started marketing white oak pastures, grass-fed beef. And I was lucky enough to be in the position that I sold Whole Foods Market 
the first pound of American grass-fed beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef. That's a big deal. It was a big deal. At that point in time, I had the production under control and the marketing under control, but I was using outside processes, little small local slaughterhouses, using their excess capacity to slaughter my cattle. And they ran out of capacity before I had enough volume to really be profitable. You know, I would call and say, I need to bring 12 head next week. <clears throat> they say, no, you can bring six. So I really need to bring 12. I've got 12 ready. I've got 12 sold. <clears throat> and I, but I could only take six. And I, I couldn't be profitable at that level. So we took the big plunge and built a USDA inspected red meat slaughter plant on the farm. And uh, that was $2.2 million. And I, I, I certainly didn't have $2.2 million, but I had inherited about a thousand acres of land, a herd of cattle, and I leveraged it, bank financing, collateral based, good old boy, bank financing. And, uh, started uh, raising and slaughtering and marketing wholesale. Um, by the way, at that time, I'd never borrowed a penny in my life. And uh, over the next few years, I borrowed seven and a half million dollars uh, to expand the farm and to expand the processing. So we, uh, we moved on with that model and, you know, been doing it ever since. <clears throat> we later added other species. I, I now believe that monocultures are bad. So we <clears throat> went from raising just cattle to today we pasture raise cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and hand butcher them here on the farm on a red meat slaughter plant I built. We pasture raise chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks, <clears throat> and butcher them in a separate USDA inspected poultry slaughterhouse that I built here on the farm. We raise pastured eggs, certified organic vegetables, honey, and just a bunch of other things that are part of the organism that I think of white oak pastures as being. <clears throat> you know, this, you know, the term factory farm is uh, uh, people, uh, industrial farmers bristle when they hear factory farm and it's why, why is my farm a factory farm? Your, your, your farm is bigger than mine. Why isn't it a factory? And the answer is because uh, a factory farm follows the factory model. You raise chickens in a chicken factory the way you make shirts in a shirt factory. Pigs in a pig factory the way you make shoes in a shoe factory. So we moved away from that. And, uh, and you know, the hardest part of, of that those transitions I just mentioned <clears throat> is keeping everything at the, at the right scale. Now, I'm, I'm often asked what scale works best. That's so highly situational. If you can, if you're in the right zip code with a high disposable income in Massachusetts or somewhere, uh, you can have a, a, a big yard with vegetables and some chickens and make a living. If you are in the poorest county in the poorest, one of the poorest states in the union, which is where I am, uh, it's different. And so we have to operate on a larger scale. 
What's important is not the scale you operate on. What's important is keeping the three legs on the stool the right length. You know, there is production in the pasture. That's the part that we all love. There's processing, which is the part that none of us love. Very capital intensive, highly regulated, dot, dot, dot. Then there's the marketing and distribution, getting it to monetizing it. And keeping those three legs the same length, one not getting too long or too short, is essential and it's the hard part. I'd like to go back to what you said about uh, monoculture and, um, you know, you moved away from cattle and now you've got umpteen species of animals there. Tell us why having just cows, for example, is not good for regenerative agriculture and, and how all of these, having all of these animals contribute. Good question. So regenerative land management is the emulation of nature. It's an imperfect emulation, but it's emulation of nature. We call it biomimicry. And we get, we try to get as close as we can, although we we don't let perfection be the enemy of better. Uh, I don't believe that you can name me any ecosystem that is a monoculture, in nature, that's a monoculture. It just, it just doesn't happen. And not only are there a number of different plants variety of plants and microbes and animal species, there's variety within those species. And those feed each other, it's called symbiosis. And we give up, give that up when we go to a monocultural production system. Monocult, we, we, my father's generation and mine, went to the monocultural system because it's so linear. And linear can be effectively scaled up to gain efficiency. That's, that's the reason we do that. Uh, and it, it's highly scalable. Nature is cyclical. And it's highly replicatable, though not really highly scalable. And it's resilient. So what's happened to our food production system is we have traded the resiliency of this cyclical system for the efficiency of that linear system. And it was a bad trade. It was a really, really bad trade. Hmm. You mentioned earlier when you converted from the cattle that you were raising in the model that your father taught you, and you started raising grass-fed cattle, you sort of hit this marketing wave and were able to really you know, attach yourself to that and to get your beef into Whole Foods is a you know, feather in your cap, certainly for that, that marketing um, wave. I'm curious, now we have this new marketing wave with plant-based um, meat replacement with the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, uh, to name a few that, um, yes, are plant-based, but also created in a laboratory. Um, 
So I'm just curious about the marketing generations here. We have the grass-fed beef uh, marketing, and now there's a lot of rhetoric around meat being bad and that we should be moving to these plant-based models. I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about your thoughts there. I can. So, uh, you know, the, you know, everybody is not my customer. That's, that's, that's lesson number one. You know, there is a whole lot more industrial, we'll just talk about beef since we're talking about plant-based protein. There's a whole lot more, exponentially more uh, grain-fed, uh, monoculturally produced uh, beef uh, consumed in this country than grass-fed. You know, I'm, 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 sadly for me, I have a small market. People like me have a small, small much smaller market. And uh, so I got several things to say, but first of all, I'll say that I don't fear plant-based protein because I don't think that a huge percentage of the people that choose my production system will choose to move to plant-based protein. And in fact, uh, people who are not my customers and eat uh, industrially, industrially produced beef today, some small percentage of them might focus a little more on exactly what they're eating and move in my direction. So I'm not, I'm not really uh, concerned over losing market share. Um, I might, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not agonizing over that. In fact, I feel I lose sleep over a lot of things. That's not one of the things I lose sleep over. Uh, I, I'll say this. Uh, I am not one of the meat producers that uh, uh, disdains the vegetarian or vegan decision that people make. You know, that whether or not to eat meat is a very personal lifestyle choice that any person should have the right to make without criticism. Uh, and, if a per and if a person tells me that they're a vegetarian or vegan because they can't bring themselves to eat the, the flesh of an animal that has lived, I respect that. Uh, that's not my sentiment, but I respect yours, no problem. Let, let me get you a banana. Uh, if a person tells me that they made that choice because they uh, don't like the taste of it or the mouthfeel, I respect that, that's fine. But I absolutely reject that they're making that decision because cows are destroying the, the, the environment. I will not accept that. I have scientific data an anecdotal observation over 25 years showing me absolutely that is not the case and I will not accept it. That's not okay. You, you, uh, you can have your own opinion, your own choice. You can't have your own facts. That's wrong. It's interesting to me, sad, but interesting to me that for the last decade, we've been told that ruminant animals are destroying the earth. And that uh, notion has gotten traction about as much as any 
uh, anything I know of. I mean, just so so many people believe that, and and I believe it's an agenda that has been spread, and uh, and, it's, and it's not right. And you know, it's just taken a decade for us to be able to defend the fact that no, no, you got that wrong. And and, and further, I would submit to you that there is no cost-effective way to regenerate degraded land without using animal impact. Cost-effective. Now, you know, if you're Bill Gates, you might put out, you know, 100 tons of compost per acre every year or something ridiculous, but there's no real cost-effective way to do it without the use of animal impact. So when we're talking about the comparison between the predominant method of raising cattle in this country through conventional methods and the opportunity to shift more to plant-based, for example, let's just go with burgers. Um, is that a ridiculous argument for, for example, for Bill Gates to make, to say, you know, I invested in the impossible burger and the beyond burger because conventional cattle production is destroying the environment? Well, I, it's, it's, I would say it's ridiculous. I think it's trading one uh, form of land management that's bad for the environment for another form of land management that's bad for the environment. I don't see much, much benefit in that. Uh, so. And the creation of these burgers, for example, um, you said, um, I know that you had shared some, uh, some data from, I guess, Qantas from 2019 that kind of compared the spectrum of uh, emissions from conventional beef all the way down to at the very high end to the very low end and how you are producing your uh, all of your products, your meats, et cetera. Um, and then somewhere in between are these um, burgers, um, these sort of laboratory burgers. Do you want to explain uh, that scientific data? Uh, no, I won't be explaining much scientific data. You know, I'm, uh, I'm an expert. I told you I'm an expert in regenerative land management. I didn't tell you I was an expert in scientific uh, uh, approach. And in fact, I'll say this. I'm really sorry that uh, so much uh, time and energy is spent among in the scientific community bickering about which scientific method is the right one. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I, I can see it from here, but I've got two big glass jars of dirt and soil. One is soil that came from my side of the fence. 5% organic modern, it's, a, it's just beautiful. The other one is half percent organic modern that came from the other side of the fence, a neighbor. And it looks like it came from two different plants. Now I don't need a lot of scientific method to tell me what's happening here. You know, they're different colors. Mine is much darker. It's darker because, you know what color carbon is? It's in the solid form. So it's, it's just clear to me that what we're doing is working. And I, uh, I'm very pleased to have some quantification through scientific method to demonstrate it. But it, uh, I, I get tired of the scientific community bickering on what's the best measurement. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that. I know I can ride by 
at 50 miles an hour on the highway and look and see the difference. So. Now you talk about your neighbors. So I'm curious to understand what their, I mean, obviously you all have relationships. You've been living in the same community for 25 years or longer, <laughs> your families. 155 years. Like 155 years, there you go. Well, not you personally, of course. The family, the family. <laughs> but your families. And I'm, I'm curious to understand kind of what your conversations are about your methods versus their methods. Do they think, did they think you were crazy at the outset? Um, and how successful have you been in convincing other conventional farmers, whether they're your neighbors or further afield to change their practices? Well, first of all, uh, I'm not an evangelist that's trying to convince my neighbors to do anything. You know, my neighbors are my friends and relatives and uh, they farm like I did. And I am absolutely not handing out Bible tracts to get them to change the way they think. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's fine. In, in fact, I would submit to you that in many ways they're smarter than I am because the risk to reward ratio in that farming method is better than it is in mine. Uh, you know, they, uh, I work without a, uh, without a net, you know, one, one E. coli recall and I'm toast. Uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of ways that, that, you know, I could fail that is not uh, a real issue for them. You know, we both operate with very high capital uh, outlay and very low returns, but the risk, the risk mitigation with uh, irrigated land and crop insurance and hedging on, you know, on the uh, futures market. You see, I can go on, on a number of things. So you know, I would feel really stupid driving up saying to my cousin and saying, hey, cuz, you really need to change what you're doing here. No, that's not going to happen. Do you have farmers from elsewhere, maybe not your cousins who are looking at your farm as a model and trying to understand better what you're doing for, so that they can replicate it? There's, there's quite a lot of that. And uh, in fact, we have a, an intern program that uh, we take uh, six interns per quarter, four times a year. I think we get 20 something applications for the six, every, 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 every quarter for the six slots. So there's a lot of people that want to that are interested in this. Uh, almost none of them are farmers that are interested in rethinking their model. Uh, pretty much, pretty, I, I, I think everybody we've ever had has been a uh, non-farm person that is, is pursuing it. Uh, education is something that we, so we, uh, I'll say that we, we have a, a, a fairly robust agritourism business. We have cabins for lodging, a store, restaurants, there's 21 meals a week, do tours and such. And I bring that up because I never intended to be in that business. It was sort of thrust upon us in that people would drive here from Atlanta or Birmingham or Orlando and say, uh, I buy your product. I want to see what, you know, came to see what you do. 
and we didn't have time to fool with them. Everybody here was busy. We were feeding hogs or, or working cattle or, or whatever. So we, uh, we built the tourism business because it, people, there was, there was that demand and we, you know, we're gracious Southerners. We don't want you to come see us and let's not uh, give you what you came after. The same is happening now, and that was 10 years ago. The same is happening now with education. We, we, I didn't want an intern program, but we were fairly inundated with people that wanted to come here and work and willing to work for free. And I can't do that. We got 176 employees. We're the largest private employer in this county. And, you know, I got to help people on workers' comp and, and insured and all the E-verified and all those things. And people think if they're working for free, they can do anything they want to. And I, I can't run a business like that. So we started, the, it was, the internship program was thrust upon us, just, just like the tourism business. And in both cases, I'm glad, I'm glad it was. In both cases, it's just not, neither one is necessarily profitable per se, but they cover their own costs and have added a dimension to what we do. So education uh, is increasingly going to be a part of the program. Very interesting. So you're not an evangelist. However, <laughs> they are I, coming I, to I, you. I, oh, it's okay. So let me, that's a good point. So I, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not going to run you down and tell you what you ought to be doing. Hell no, I don't do that. Uh, but if you ask me, about something that I think I know a lot about. One of the one of the three only three things I know a lot about. Uh, I, I not only do I feel like I should tell you, I want to tell you. You know, we're fiercely proud of what we do here, and enjoy talking about it to people that want to talk about it. But I'm not so presumptuous to think that everybody wants to talk about it. So, what inspired you to write this letter to Bill Gates? Uh, the fact that uh, I, I thought that he was uh, uh, applying technology to correct problems that have been caused by technology. And I thought that was wrong. And I didn't necessarily think that I could uh, change his mind, but I couldn't let it go unchecked. As you pointed out, the man's got a quarter million acres of farmland. And all those other things. And it just needed to be said out loud. So I, I did. And, 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 and oh yeah, my daughter told me she wanted me to do that. That was the other thing. <laughs> Gotta listen to her. Yeah, you down right. Now, have you heard from him yet? No, no. And, and you know, the likelihood of me hearing from him is you know, thin to none. But you know, I did, I, I did, what, I, I did what I could do. So I'm curious, um, a lot of farmers lease land from other landowners who aren't farmers, who are investors across the country. I know that at least 60% of, um, of you know, row farming in the Midwest is not owned by the farmers who are farming the land. I interviewed a farmer in California who grows organic berries. And they said that barely anybody out there owns their own land. They're all leasing it. 
I'm just curious about that. I mean, could do you think this could just be Bill Gates owning land and making money, pulling in rent from from farmers or in your heart of hearts, do you think he's up to something else? I don't know exactly how to answer the, the question as asked. I'll say this. Uh, I don't think that people should own land that don't know what to do with the land. I don't think Bill Gates knows what to do with the land. So, you know, uh, you know, ownership of land is, uh, I, think, I think, unique in many ways. I, I bought a little farm near here. And uh, and I paid uh, a little under two thousand dollars an acre for it, which is what the market is for non-irrigated farmland in Bluffton, Georgia. Uh, I don't keep up with the price of gold because I don't have any gold or expect to own any gold. But I was listening to I'm a news junkie, and I just it just caught my ear that that day that I closed on that on that land. Gold was two thousand and forty something dollars an ounce, and it just took my breath away that an ounce of gold was bringing the same thing as an acre of land. You know, they're they're both. You know what? So what they have in common is they are both non-depreciating assets. And I really can't think of any non-depreciating assets except land and precious metals and gems and you know maybe art. I don't I don't know anything about art, but you know there's not there aren't many non-depreciating assets. And then when I think about comparing gold at $2,042 and land at, at $1,900 and something dollars an, uh, an acre. I think about all the advantages that land has. The only advantage that gold has over land that I can think of is it's more portable and it's probably a little bit more liquid, probably. But look at the advantages land has. Not only is it non-depreciating, you can improve an acre of land. I've been doing it for 25 years. My land is worth a lot more than it was 25 years ago because I've increased the productivity. You can't, you can't do that with gold. You, know, you can steal gold, it's hard to steal land. Uh, you can go and, and have a picnic and, and you know, fish a hunt on your land, you can't do it. You know, I, I just, I, 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 a society that has gold and amounts of gold like a land brings the same thing, it takes my breath away. But then I thought about it enough, I figured out why that is. And the answer is most investors have no idea what to do with an acre of land. No idea. Everybody knows what to do with an ounce of gold. You, you put it in a safe place and hope it goes up. So the the you know I know I don't think that Bill Gates or anybody else that doesn't know what to do with land ought to have it. You know, decisions made on land should be multi-generational decisions. You know, decisions made in corporate America where Mr. Gates lives are based on quarterly reports or annual reports. We make generational decisions. My, my, I'm the fourth generation on this farm. I got two daughters and their spouses helping me run it. It's the fifth, and they got three babies between them that are the sixth on the same piece of land. That's nice. I have a question for you. 
when I first heard that Bill Gates had, like you said, a quarter of a million acres of land and, you know, you're a news junkie, so you've been listening to the news and there was a, a pretty big lawsuit against the USDA in favor of black farmers and a big justice for black farmers push now for debt forgiveness and, and what have you. And, and I guess I was thinking about all of the descendants of sharecroppers and slavery that, you know, they don't have their family's land. You have your family's land and you've been able to convert it from unhealthy land to healthy land. And, you know, like you mentioned, you need it alone and there's a good old boys network for you to tap into. And I'm just, I guess I felt when, when I heard that for Bill Gates to have all this land, he's not a farmer. He's not looking to farm the land. He's made an investment in it. And at, you know, and that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, there are black farmers who want land and want to be able to farm it and want to be able to farm it you know, in their way, you know, hopefully in a sustainable way. But I guess I'm just curious, especially from you being there in Georgia and just thinking about those, you know, this dichotomy, what your thoughts are about that. So I do have thoughts and I'll give them to you, but I want to make it clear that I was trying to be very plain that I'm an expert in regenerative land management and compassionate animal welfare and rural community building. And we're getting into something now that's way out of my wheelhouse and above my, above my pay grade. But I, I do have thoughts and I will give them to you. And I've already made it clear that people like, I, don't, I, I, I hate seeing people like Bill Gates buy up land because they don't know what to do with it. I want to see people that know what to do with it only and know how to cherish it and take care of it and make it better. We start the cycles of nature. So we will go back to the indigenous people that, that owned this land before we Europeans got here. <clears throat> and <clears throat> there is no doubt they were doing a heck of a lot better job with it than, than we have done. You know, what they were doing was perpetual perpetual. And what we have done is very terminal. So to be sure, that was a, a, a tremendous step back. Uh, to be sure, slavery is an abomination. I mean, I, I don't know any thinking, compassionate person has got a different opinion of that. So we're together on all those things. Now, you know, the sociology of what to do about it, you know, I know how to regenerate degraded land and manage animals on a manner in which they can express instinctive behavior. And we're doing a really good job re-enriching this impoverished community. But some of y'all are gonna have to take care of that, that, that problem you're talking about. This really wasn't a very fair question to ask Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, but it is a fair question to ask Mr. Bill Gates and I hope that somebody else will ask it. I've interviewed a lot of farmers across the country and another interesting thread that I have seen for bigger farmers and smaller farmers is this development of personal autonomy or you know, farm first autonomy. You have it 
you have the facilities there to slaughter your own animals because you couldn't find the system that worked for you outside of your own farm. There's a tremendous shift, it seems, at least with the farmers I'm talking to, that big or small, autonomy is key to making money, to not being fed into these commodity structures where you don't have any say. Dairy farmers too. So it's super interesting to hear it from a farmer who's, well, not just been around, but you're doing it on such a big scale. Well, what I think that what you are describing there is further finding ways to become resilient. Closing, closing loops is resilient. You know, industrial commodity farming is not very resilient. You know, if, you, if you're uh, raising... Uh, cotton and big, big acreage of uh, monoculture. You know, monoculture is usually a rotation, but still monoculture, but you know, and you're, you're, you, every spring you've got to go to the fertilizer store and buy fertilizer from somebody else that you have no control over <clears throat> other than to, to mono, you know, pay for it, you know, buy it from somebody else. Same with seed, particularly GMO seed, that there's no way to get them except buy them from the guy that's got it. You know, equipment, fuel, uh, you know, on down the line, all the inputs. And then you, what you produce, whether it's live hogs or a bushel of corn, you basically got to have somebody come get it. I mean, you, maybe you can take it to them, but when you, uh, at the farm gate, cut loose of that raw commodity, you depended upon somebody else. And all that dependence is uh, a fallout from the linear scalability. And, you know, it, it's, it's literally the difference in terminal and perpetual. What we do here is perpetual. You know, it, 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 it's one thing follows the next, follows the next. I don't buy fertilizer. We, we generate about nine tons of packing plant waste a day. We compost it, and that's the only fertility that, that, we, that goes out there, you know, cyclical, closing loops. I'm going, I missed a bunch of things like that. Uh, versus the terminal, which is like, it's like baking a cake. You know, you go to the, you go to the store and instead of buying sugar and flour and butter, you buy seed and chemicals and fertilizer and you mix them up. You know, the mixer is your tractor, right then, and then and the stove, which is your land and it cooks for 90 or 120, 150 days, then you harvest it and sell the cake. And then you wait for the next batch. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not there's anything wrong with that. I did that for many, many years. And, and it is highly scalable, which lends itself to incredible efficiency, which takes cost out of production. So that I'm, I'm, I'm not saying what I do is better than. I'm saying what I do is different than. It's not as not as efficient. I mean, if you if your metric is efficiency, I lose. I lose. If your metric if your metric is resiliency, I win. That's and that's why I'm not an evangelist. You know, I'm not. That's why I'm not trying to get people to come my way. It seems like they're coming. 
you know, I don't know. But it seems like the big companies are greenwashing just make it sound like they're coming, like they're. Interesting. The biggest, uh, the biggest uh, deterrent to the spread of this kind of farming is greenwashing by big multinational food companies. How are they doing that? The uh, the USDA label system is is flawed, uh, horribly flawed. The uh, the certification systems that are available to us are so confusing. You know, it's just so many of them that are very low hanging fruit. All the way up to some very good ones. Consumers confused. They don't know what to believe. The uh, multinational, big multinational company can hire really smart people to talk about what they do in a way that can be very pleasing to consumers. Uh, you know, it's, you know, the only, the, the, the shield and only shield and sword we have is authenticity and transparency. Thanks for joining me for this really enlightening conversation with farmer Will Harris of White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. Will Harris found a way out of factory farming. And even though he says he's not a regenerative farming evangelist, his actions speak louder than his words. I hope that Bill Gates takes him up on his offer for a visit to the farm. I will republish Will Harris's letter to Bill Gates in my show notes on talkfarmtome.com. Thanks again for joining me. And if you liked what you heard, please share it or write a review on Apple Podcasts or drop me a note. You can also find me on Instagram with a lot more about farms and farmers on XOXO Farm Girl or on Talk Farm To Me. We'll talk some more farm soon.